Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Hello, I'm Roscoe Mathieu, pronouns he, him, stranger, and welcome to Solidarity Forever, the History of American Labor. Episode 3, The Exceptional Americans. Last time, I covered two of the institutions that made American labor in its years under the English crown. The local adaptation of the master journeyman apprentice system from Europe, and the horrifying mass enslavement of Africans, codified into slave codes and institutionalized into widespread racism. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the other peculiarities of American labor in the colonial era and how labor contributed to the revolution that ended that colonial era. Aside from the masters, journeymen, and apprentices, and aside from mass, racialized chattel slavery, there are three other things that make American labor history weird and set the tone for how it would differ from labor in Europe and across the world. These three things are land, the distribution of free to unfree labor, and American exceptionalism. Let's start with land. In my script, I have land in 24-point boldface all caps in the middle of the page. It's that important. It's hard for Americans, or Canadians, who have never been abroad to wrap our heads around just how big the country is, how much land there is, and what that does to our psychology. When my friend from England came over to America for a few weeks, one of the things that made his eyes boggle was the sheer size and wildness of the place. Over a scenic lookout, we gazed on majestic forests and valleys, and he asked about the place's history. I don't know, I said. It's public land. Could be no one's been down there since the local native nation left or died. He mused on this, as a barrister admitted to the Inns at Court in London, who specializes in real estate, and commented, there's no square inch of England, even in the middle of Sherwood Forest, that isn't owned by someone, usually several someones, where a lord died, a king was conceived, or local history made. And we have receipts for all of it. He was astonished that we didn't keep track of every square inch of America, because the concept was so alien to his experience. Now imagine coming from the slums of 16th century London, or Gdansk, or Copenhagen, kidnapped, or indentured, or maybe even paid your own passage. And you step off the boat and there's all this land. So much land, they're giving it away. The size and scope of American land blows minds, but if you grew up in it, you might not even notice. Even in coastal Virginia, the call of the West was always there. Until the closing of the Western frontier in 1890, the bosses, and later the capitalists, always had to contend with the fact that their white labor could, and would, go west, young man, if conditions got bad enough. You couldn't just copy English feudal patterns and English guilds. Your putative subjects would just up and move further inland, away from you and your armed men and your personal law. It was impossible to keep wage earners on the jobs in the growing eastern cities. Out west, the pay was higher if you wanted to keep working, and the land was cheap if you wanted to become a farmer and a landowner and a planter. And, in any case, the air was freer and you had more liberty in your daily life than in the squalid situation of Boston, 
Philadelphia, or Jamestown. African Americans even got in on this action. Slave codes are no damn slave codes, as evidenced by the great dismal swamp communities on the border of Virginia and Carolina, those along the Savannah River, and the proud history of the black Cherokees. But as for the whites, the farmers, artisans, and ordinary workers were more independent and assertive than their cousins in Europe. They even expected to participate in government, especially in the North, where the Bishop of London said of Massachusetts that their leaders are guides fit for them, cobblers, tailors, felt makers, and such like trash. The white workers of America have always maintained a belief that they are free and equal citizens in a democratic republic, which starts here with the poor whites of the colonies. Only since the 20th century have people outside that narrow demographic band been able to assert their own status as free and equal citizens, and we have a long, long way to go, both inside and outside the labor movement. But this arrogance, this pride, did bear fruit. Regardless of class, most New World residents enjoyed more material comforts, better health, and greater life expectancies than their Old World counterparts, write Dubofsky and McCartan in Labor in America. That, at least, is the evidence as compiled by scholars who have studied and accumulated statistical data about morbidity, mortality, and body types. No word one way or the other on whether these studies included African Americans, but I would love to find out. If any of you can point me in the right direction, shoot me an email. The second peculiarity of American labor is the geographic spread of both free and unfree labor. And here I mean slavery, indenture, contract labor, all the way up to truly free labor that chooses for themselves their work as they see fit. The majority of labor in the South, as we discussed last time, was enslaved labor by the year 1700. The middle colonies, Pennsylvania chief among them, ran mainly on white indentured labor, even until the middle of the 18th century. Free labor dominated New England, which makes sense to me. You'd have to pay me good money to work for Cotton Mather, too. This is not to say that slavery did not stretch north. Even in Canada, they had their penoys. And in New York City, something like one-third of their workers were enslaved in the 1740s, just 30 years before the Revolution. One of them, Caesar Varick, headed a conspiracy to set New York to the torch and run away to Quebec and freedom under the fleur-de-lis, but they were apprehended in 1741 and burned at the stake. Again, that was in New York City. Slave rebellions like Jemmy's Rebellion in South Carolina fared worse. Regardless, there was a definite geographical element to labor in colonial America, with the labor freer as you move north. This is why Massachusetts passed the first labor laws in America affecting free workers in 1630. It set the maximum wages allowable by law. You heard right, the maximum wage. Two shillings a day for carpenters, joiners, bricklayers, and all the other tradesmen that the Boston Brahmins felt were earning too much money, and 18 pence a day for the rabble. They also set sumptuary laws restricting dress and affect, forbade a worker from changing occupations, and made it illegal to give a working man a beer. All this was rooted, obviously, in the self-interest of New England's upper class, but also in a sincere Puritanism. They truly believed that low wages and long hours made the nation prosperous and the soul saved, like their Anglican class brothers back in England. The saying, idle hands are the devil's playthings, is this philosophy in a nutshell. 
the lower classes must work or they will waste their time drinking, gambling, dancing, or on other social ills. In drafting the law, the General Court of Massachusetts wrote, The produce of their wages is by many spent to maintain such bravery and apparel, which is altogether unbecoming of their place and rank, and in idleness of life, and a great part spent viciously in taverns and alehouses and other sinful practices much to the dishonor of God, scandal of religion, and great offense and grief to sober and godly people among us. Make no mistake, greed and the desire to use the labor of others to enrich themselves was part of the equation. But their beliefs about idleness, work, and God played a part too. And those will come back around. Boy, howdy, are those going to come back around. Related to idle hands was home manufacture. Even after all this talk of wage workers, white or black, the plain fact is that the vast majority of the colonial population tilled their own land and made what they needed on site. This was an agricultural nation, first and foremost. Some of the more prosperous ones had an apprentice or two, or a servant or two, who helped them for wages, for room and board, or because there was some kind of bound to the landowner. The great southern planters, of course, trained their slaves into skilled workers that home-manufactured at scales rivaling the urban north. A slave owner named Robert Carter had a smithy, a fulling mill, a grain mill, salt works, and both spinning and weaving establishments on his plantation, according to Dubovsky and McCartan. Although he hired free whites, the majority of his workers were skilled or unskilled enslaved African Americans. Still, the middle and northern colonies were starting to manufacture on an even bigger scale, especially as you get farther into the 1700s. There were full ironworks in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New Jersey, employing a great many free working men on the eve of the Revolution. Linen factories presaging the textile work that's going to play such a big part of our story, went up in Boston and Philadelphia. The merchants, too, were growing and changing. The old trade masters, the cord wainers and felt makers and smiths, had opened retail shops and no longer relied on bespoke work, employing apprentices, skilled journeymen, and day laborers alike. Many of them left the whole of the actual sewing of shoes or forging of silverware to their workers, spending their days selling the wares and overseeing the shop. A rift was opening between the journeymen, soon to be ordinary trainsmen, or mechanics, you'll be hearing that a lot, and the masters, who were slowly transforming into the first real capitalists, alongside the likes of Peter Hasenclever and the other manufacturers of iron and fabric, and the commanders of the great shipping fleets that employed hundreds or thousands of sailors, whalers, fishermen, and dock workers not to mention their household servants, assuming they hadn't cashiered them for enslaved African servants to keep up with the Joneses. This is all to drive home that, like everywhere else in Europe, and perhaps the world, there was no free working class by 1776. The majority of those who didn't own their own land were African slaves, and the shrinking, but still sizable, population of white indentured servants, and the minority of free wage-earning workers were constrained by statute, custom and contract in their earnings, their lifestyles, even their ability to travel. As Dubovsky and McCartan note, it would require decades of political and legal struggle for non-slave workers to achieve real freedom, and a bloody civil war to emancipate the slaves. Which brings us to July 4th, 1776.
I'm not going to bore you with the sophomore social studies class. I assume you've all seen Hamilton by now anyway. But just to recap, after the French and Indian War ended in 1761, which, incidentally, drove up working-class wages by enrolling so many working men into the armies, Britain's taxation of its American colonies to pay for the huge army they were still camping there started to rankle. One thing led to another, secret sons of liberty clubs were formed first in New England and then across the 13 British colonies, some Bostonians wore red face and appropriated native dress to throw tea in the harbor, words were said, shots fired, and a revolutionary war of independence began in the British colonies in America. The sons of liberty, and later the revolutionary army, were both started by prosperous merchants over protests against British taxation, but became working class almost to a man among the rank and file. The right to vote was still restricted, in most places, to landowners, and the landless wage earners like bricklayers, weavers, and longshoremen took up the cry for liberty with zeal. They saw independence not only as liberation from London, they could have cared less about tea taxes when they couldn't afford tea, but against the sumptuary laws and maximum wage statutes that the local landowners used to keep them in line. The argument that led to the Boston Massacre started between colonial workers, specifically rope makers, and British troops. General Thomas Gage wrote, A particular quarrel happened at a rope walk with a few soldiers of the 29th Regiment. The provocation was given by the rope walkers, though it may be imagined in the course of it that there were faults on both sides. This quarrel, it is supposed, excited the people to convert a general rising on the night of the 5th of March. That general rising turned deadly, and the resulting trial catapulted John Adams to national prominence to Philadelphia, and ultimately to the first president to sit in the Oval Office of the White House. Their local leadership, the ones who summoned the crowds that night, were, according to Dubofsky and McCartan, two distillers, two brass workers, a printer, a jeweler, a house painter, and a ship captain. They did not become presidents. The same was true across the new nation. Sons of Liberty chapters coalesced around proto-unions like the Heart in Hand Fire Company in Philadelphia and the Firemen's Association of Charleston. These were usually local associations of journeymen who both worked to ensure professional standards, like the old trade guilds of Europe, care for their sick and disabled, and protect the wages and working conditions, as the trade unions would come to do. These same men became local patriot leadership and the massive bodies mustering up the state militias and the Continental Army when wartime came, filled with revolutionary zeal for a new country with new ideas and new labor relations. This scared the bejesus out of the Continental Congress. Even as they organized them into defenders of liberty, the old leadership, whether Boston Brahmins, Quaker merchants, or the first families of Virginia, feared what these tradesmen and workmen might make the revolution into if they went too far. No less than Governor Morris wrote, The heads of the mobility, the mob, grow dangerous to the gentry, and how to keep them down is the question. Staffed prominently, but not exclusively by Southern, and especially Virginian, slave owners, since managing sprawling plantations and estates worked by enslaved labor was the closest most of them had to governing experience, the Continental Congress declared independence from Britain on July 4, 1776, declaring it a self-evident truth that all men are created equal, with inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the formation of a new nation calling themselves the United States of America. 
This came as surprising news, of course, to the huddled masses of enslaved Africans yearning to breathe free. In the course of the war, a considerable number of them joined the British, on the fairly sound logic, later explicitly articulated by British officers, that they would be freed for their service. Those who survived America's victory in the Revolutionary War fled to Canada, forming the first significant black Canadian population, even as many of their former masters did likewise, finally tipping Canada's demographics in favor of Anglophones over Francophones and altering Canadian history forever. In the new nation of America, even free white workers' hopes were cut short. Fear of the leveling spirit drove the landowners and nascent capitalists who controlled the national and state governments to limit changes or concessions to labor. Theirs was a democracy of freehold farmers, an idealized Roman republic of citizen farmer militiamen, not of landless laborers. Thomas Jefferson, prominent patriot, polymath, president, slave owner, and rapist, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, also wrote, The mobs of great cities add just so much to the support of pure government as sores do to the strength of the human body. He was talking about the French Revolution, but he was also talking about his own. When the Articles of Confederation folded like newspaper in the wind and the Constitutional Convention met, labor's power was shadowy but present. They, as much as Hamilton and his Federalist Papers, won over New York for ratification. Certainly, they supported a strong central government, able to levy tariffs to protect them from a flood of cheap foreign goods. No, not from China or Indonesia, but from shifty countries like England, Spain, and France. And to promote foreign commerce, providing good jobs and paying jobs to everyone even remotely connected to the sea, onshore or off. They also liked the sound of this republic that the Constitution promised for, as we discussed, equal and free citizens in a democratic republic. They weren't going to get it for a while. Free labor lived well by European standards, but not by the American ones they had fought and often died for. And while their own fortunes were, in fact, advancing, so were prices, and their fortunes weren't keeping up with either the merchants and capitalists, making money hand over fist in the new liberty of America, or with inflation. John Jay, in 1784, complained that the wages of mechanics and laborers are very extravagant, but the wages for unskilled day workers was about 15 shillings a week, barely enough for dry bread and water in a cold corner in some landlord's outbuilding. 19th century historian John Bach McMaster wrote of the unskilled worker under Washington's presidency, On such a pittance, it was only by the strictest economy that a mechanic kept his children from starvation and himself from jail. In the low and dingy rooms which he called his home were wanting many articles of adornment and of use now to be found in the dwellings of the poorest of his class. Sand sprinkled on the floor did duty as a carpet. There was no glass on his table. There was no china in his cupboard. There were no prints on his walls. His wife cooked up a rude meal and served it in pewter dishes. He rarely tasted fresh meat as often as once a week. But this was not necessarily the case for skilled workers. And it's in them, in the proud, racist, classist, white middle class, that the future of labor lay. The future that would one day stretch to the working classes and even to black workers, women workers, and black women workers. Because, in a nation still defined by agriculture and homemade industry, 
The village blacksmith, or cordwainer, or able-bodied sailor had a certain social cachet. They were respected for the rarity of their skills. And while neither white day laborers nor enslaved blacks, since Jefferson declared the actual slave trade from Africa illegal, had the bargaining power or political rights to improve their conditions, and while master craftsmen were becoming merchant capitalists with incomes they could scarcely dream of, the journeymen, now called tradesmen, or mechanics, could still come together and demand better treatment on the threat of setting down their tools. The facts of the Jamestown Polish workers' strike had long since faded from memory, but the spirit remained. Meanwhile, Alexander Hamilton, notorious Broadway star, Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, author of the Reynolds Pamphlet and the Federalist Papers, and all-time bullet-catching champion of 1804 New Jersey, went for a walk in Massachusetts. Which brings me, at last, to the third thing that makes American labor exceptional. American exceptionalism. I am not here talking about the twin modern manifestations of American exceptionalism. America, the leader of the free world, or America, the great Satan. I'm not even talking about the fallacious notion that both spring from. America, the only country with moral agency. I'm talking about something deeper, something raw. America is, somehow, fundamentally different than the countries of the old world. This basic idea informs both American capital and American labor in how they see themselves, each other, and the world. It's where we get social media messages condemning American bosses exclusively as the worst in the world with the unstated assumption that some religious or cultural inhibitions make rapacious landlords and predatory capitalists more acceptable in Europe, Asia, or Africa. It's where we got the progressive era's belief that American workers must lead the world in freedom and organization. And it's where we get the IWW. It's where capitalists get that never-ending propaganda spring that America is based on hard work and rugged individualism, so the American worker must not need unions, unlike those weak-willed pinkos in France or China, or whatever foreign nation is trying to infect pure American shores. And it's where we get this idea that maybe, just maybe, American industry didn't have to be as bad as European industry was. When Hamilton took his walk, it was in the full belief that, as Philip Dre writes in his epic doorstopper, There is Power in a Union, American industry would be exceptional for being shaped by American ideals. Hamilton and the rest of the Federalists did not see a new nation of citizen farmers like Jefferson did. Hamilton foresaw industrialization growing to dwarf American agriculture, the urban laborer outnumbering the freehold farmer. But he saw the possibility of industry enhancing agriculture mass-producing tools to bring in record harvests to feed the teeming masses, making tools to ship back to the farms. The farmers and workers, together forming a virtuous cycle that catapulted America into a great power, able to defend her new independence against all comers. He told his fellow citizens that industrializing America, making a free and democratic industrial revolution, as they'd made a free and democratic political revolution, was the next great work to be accomplished. Said another American, who had just returned from Dickensian England, God forbid that there ever may be a Manchester in the New World. 
He and Hamilton and visionaries dazzled by bright mad possibility like Tench Cox or Francis Cabot Lowell really thought that American virtue and American ideals could guide industrialization down another path, one without the smog-choked skies and teeming disease-ridden slums that Britain and France suffered there in the birthing pangs of the Industrial Revolution. They believed, and again I'm quoting Dre, that the purity of America, its virtuous and revolutionary outlook, would democratize and morally sanitize its factory system. It was a deeply, deeply appealing idea. On that walk, Hamilton saw in the rivers and valleys of rural eastern and central Massachusetts water mills and the bright open working townships that his friend Tench Cox had promised would become the face of American industry, peopled by clean, healthy women and girls out to earn their own wages and make their own way and put their idle hands to good use until they could land a husband. There would be parks and libraries, open spaces and clean houses, churches by the dozen, and giant mills run by rich men that would loom over the rivers and over the land. This exceptional idea of a better, nicer American manufacturing has always been with us. It was Lowell, Massachusetts in 1810, and Pullman, Illinois in 1880, Fordlandia in the 1910s, and the Google campus in California in 2010. It's always been a con, as the very next downturn turns the model company city into a company town, full of rapacious landlords and greedy employers and gouging shopkeepers who are all the same person. It's an old story in America, and a new one. And if you don't like that history, go out and make some labor history of your own. But it all starts here, with Alexander Hamilton walking with Tench Cox along the banks of the Merrimack and seeing a new and better Industrial Revolution, an American Industrial Revolution, springing from the shores. But the story of the Merrimack and of Lowell, Massachusetts, and the mill girls who fought for their rights will have to wait. Next time, we're looking at the landmark decision that made everything those mill girls did illegal and the ineffective political actions of the working men to make it right. Next time, we're throwing a working man's party. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever.